Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Friends, let's turn our attention this morning to the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew holds the primary position in the New Testament, though it wasn't the earliest Gospel written. Most scholars agree that Mark's Gospel, created right around 70 CE, predates Matthew's, which emerged later between 80 and 90 CE. Matthew's accounts of Jesus' earliest parts of life while sharing similarities with Luke's narrative, also have distinct differences. None of the events reported in Matthew 2 are found in Luke 1 or 2. One significant contrast lies in the visit of the Magi, an occurrence unique to Matthew. Conversely, much of Luke 1 and 2 contains stories absent in Matthew, like Elizabeth and Zachariah's tale, John the Baptist's birth, Joseph's journey to the census in Bethlehem, the shepherd's adoration, and the presentation of Jesus in the temple are all found exclusively in Luke. In Matthew's account, Joseph takes the main focus, receiving the angel's announcement of Jesus' birth. Conversely, in Luke, the announcement is directed to Mary, the virgin favored by God, while Joseph has a more secondary role. Matthew places strong emphasis on Jesus's identity as the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah foretold in the Hebrew scripture. With this in mind, it's notable that three Gentiles, guided by divine signs, journeyed from a distant land to worship the newborn child, highlighting Jesus's significance and identity as Savior for all people. Hear now a reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we have observed his star in the east and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him, calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem, land of Judea, for it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers. For from you, you shall come a ruler who is to be shepherd of the people of Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me so that I may go also and pay him homage. When they had heard that the king was calling for them, they set out. They went ahead and followed the star that they had seen in the east until it stopped over a place where the child was. When they saw it and knew that the child and star, I'm sorry, when they saw it, that the star had stopped, 
they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering this house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening up their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return the way of Herod, they left for their own country by another way. Thus ends the reading. Our great Redeemer, glorious Savior, your name is higher than the rising sun. Light of the morning, you shine forever. Your name is higher than the rising sun. Your name is higher than the rising sun. Your name is higher than the rising sun. Well, here we all are. Yeah, our little blue planet has completed another circuit around the sun. One more year is gone. And hopefully we all stand on the precipice of a brand new journey. This time of year, I'm always reminded of a quote I once heard in a movie. I, I can't remember what movie, but I wrote it down. It says, I guess that when you get to the end, you start thinking a lot about the beginning. And that's what we do at this time of year, don't we? We look back, we remember, we think about it, and hopefully, I pray, look forward with a renewed vision of hope into a new future. We make resolutions, if that's your thing, and we ask questions. Where do I begin from? Where do I start from? And if I figure that out, hopefully I'll start from that spot just a little more often this year. Now look, one thing I know for sure, loved ones, is that we all start somewhere. In every circumstance, in every word we spew forth into the universe, every action we take or don't take, the very disposition we maintain towards others and ourselves, we all start from somewhere. Now, we like to focus a lot on where we're going, the destination, and I get that. But today, as we say goodbye to the Christmas season, and while we might be wondering where we go next, I would submit for your consideration that most of the time, where we start from is often more important than the destination we aim to reach. You see, where we start quite often determines the how of the rest of the way. There's a well-known joke about a tourist in Ireland who asked one of the locals where Dublin is and how to get there. And the old Irishman says, well, sir, if you're trying to get to Dublin, I wouldn't start from here. And you're welcome that I didn't do that in an Irish accent. We all start somewhere, and starting is important. The attitude, the mindsets, the perceptions that we begin with, see, they determine how we view and negotiate the experience of our existence in this world. And the how of our existence tends to reveal who we are, that deepest part of our being where our real identity resides. Today is Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany was one of the three great festivals of the early church. Easter, of course, 
Pentecost, and then Epiphany. The word Epiphany comes from a Greek word, Epiphania. Epiphania. It means appearance or manifestation. This day is often called the Feast of Theophany in the Eastern Orthodox traditions, and from ancient times, predating Christmas celebrations, it was called the Day of Illumination or the Feast of Lights, and the rites and rituals of this day are dated all the way back to the early 2nd century CE. During this sacred time and through Matthew's gospel, we come aware, we become aware of the visit of these wise men, our magi, who come in search of the Christ child so that they may present their gifts to him. Interestingly, in a homily of one of the early saints and bishops of the church, he preached that, quote, the feast of Epiphany manifests even more wonders than the feast of Christmas itself. And that's a bold statement. We all like Christmas, but nevertheless, this event that we read about today, that Rev. Amy read about, raises great curiosity, I think, in the details of the text. The arrival of these visitors was a sign. It was a sign that the incarnation of God in Christ had been made known and was recognized by the heavens to the whole world, so that even these Gentile pagan wise men from the east would come to pay homage it's an observance of great majesty, solemnity, reverence, and awe. It's a wonderful day in the life of the church, a wonderful day celebrated in many joyous and beautiful, diverse ways throughout the globe. In Latin cultures, for example, Epiphany is a day of great rejoicing and celebration, often kicked off by a parade the night before in which people dress up as the three kings or carry big statues of the kings as they pass through towns and villages through the streets just lobbing candy all over the place to everybody watching. It's beautiful. Families and children alike look forward to Dia de los Tres Reyes, they say, Three Kings Day. It is a time for presents, for feasting and celebration. Some attend church services that include the celebration of communion. And it's often common in these cultures that Folks who never attend worship at all, go on that day. I'm just saying. As I mentioned before, this word epiphany, epiphania, manifestation, appearance. It's a wonderful word. And, and, and here's the wonder. Not just that God became flesh in a unique and powerful way. But that it was seen. It was witnessed. And who saw it? Well, Matthew calls them magi. He's magi to now, sometimes, those of you that know me will find this a great surprise, <laughs> but I think tradition, yes, tradition is a great aid to biblical interpretation. It highlights and deepens our understanding of the Scriptures while simultaneously bringing with it the wisdom of our forebears and ancestors in the faith. Now, there are times when the tradition focuses on one particular aspect of the text to the exclusion of all others, and this one here, these magi, is a particular case of that instance. The tradition that I was raised in, for example, presented this as a story of three kings. Did you ever hear that? Three kings, right? Our three wise men, our three magi. Now, the noun for the travelers was used interchangeably, but the number never varied. There was always one, two, three. Never more, never less. Three. Now, in truth, the text itself doesn't tell us how many there were. It's a plural noun. It just means there were some of them. And here's a kicker for you. It doesn't say they were men. Look out now. They could have been women, for all we know. You don't know. It doesn't say. 
Now, sometimes I think as we look at this, and, and we see this at the birth of the Magi, these, at the birth of Jesus, these Magi, magicians, astrologers, or wise persons, they, they come from the east. Again, we don't know where they came from. It could have been Babylon. It could have been Persia. Some say Arabia. Later on, much later on, tradition would make them kings instead of magi. Most scholars agree that that probably is derived from a study of Scripture because when you read Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11, it says, May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, it says. So, maybe. Tradition also names them. Did you know they have names? They do. Melchior, Casper, Palthasar. But again, Matthew doesn't say that there were three. He doesn't say that they were men. And he certainly doesn't name them. The tradition of three magi probably arose from the three gifts that are mentioned. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was precious. It was worthy of a king. Frankincense was incense worthy of divinity. And myrrh was a spice used in burials. So the gifts were appropriate, you see. They were appropriate for one who was a king, a god, and a suffering redeemer. Interestingly, they also symbolize our response to this king. Gold symbolizes virtue and good deeds. Incense is symbolic of worship and prayer. And myrrh has always been represented for suffering and sacrifice. So this word, this day, epiphany, and these events recorded in Matthew's Gospels have come simply to mean a manifestation or a showing forth of the Christ child to all nations. But here's the thing. I think it reveals how God enlightens the hearts of all people and how God helps them discover divine revelation, search out this truth, and to be faithful to it. The journey of these wise individuals, it begins as a search for truth through a simple observation of nature. The use of our human reason in the search for truth. I mean, it continually poses questions about the origins of life, the universe, the nature of a human being, the search for God, ultimate meanings. So I think in many ways, this journey of the Magi, it is humanity's journey through all of the ages. And beloved, there is no doubt no doubt that in our present society, there exists a generation of seekers. I mean, think about it. The fields of research have multiplied. Through technology, the modes of communication have become global in reach, and access to information is made effortless through global connections via the Internet. It is an experience of tremendous power, sometimes control, and it seems transformative, but it can also leave us empty and ultimately unsatisfied. Yet despite our amazing advances in connectivity, there is an irony to it all. At least I think so. The irony is, is that in the shadow of this experience of searching, it seems that in many parts of our world, there is a desire to do this without any reference to the divine. And herein, maybe, lies our first lesson that we can take from the text. These magi, are a model of humility in the search for truth. Did you hear the story? They seek guidance through the Scripture. They enter into dialogue with the chief priest and the scribes. The gifts of faith and its insight into truth were essential for them on the final leg of their journey. They didn't abandon the star and the use of their reason. For both of them together, 
directed them to Bethlehem. And at the end of their search, they received a wonderful gift, the gift of faith, which was acknowledged and symbolized by their act of falling on their knees before this child. Now, as a minister, I have witnessed this desire to question the reality of our faith in today's young people. And I don't want to center them out. I get it from everywhere, but from a lot of young people. Some do it in open dialogue with the church. Others do it secretly and silently. And the questions are far-ranging. Is there a God, preacher? What are the origins of human life given all this scientific discovery? Why should I profess the Christian faith? What does Christianity have to offer, after all, that the other major world religions don't? It's my favorite one. Why come to church at all? I'm so glad you all are here today. Why should I fall on my knees and pay homage to this God? Beloved, I think the Feast of Epiphany offers us the opportunity to raise such questions and to see that the church desires to enter into that dialogue as we search for the truth together. To show that faith and reason are not incompatible But in searching to answer the questions of life, they are both necessary for our search of the truth, provided that it's done with the spirit of humility and to the benefit of humanity. I don't know. I think the challenge we face today is that society often begins its search from secular origins without any reference to God. And it's important then for the church to search out the signs of the Christian faith in our society and to point to these so that people can begin their journey as the Magi did with a reference to the divine. Now, look, it, it, it would be easy. Good Lord. It would be easy for us to just sit back in our armchairs and critique society and point out all of their moral weaknesses and their lack of foundation in Christian tradition rather than being a church that is open to questions, open to the questions posed, and then offering ourselves as a guide. And I think this is so, so important for our young people and for today as we search for truth. It might be important that we see in this present generation not simply seekers of information, but an entire generation of magi who are looking for the divine. And as I read the passage this week, I began to notice something that tradition, ironically, missed. With all of its focus on the gifts and the magi, I think it missed something. It's missed a word, a word that I think is central to the interpretation of the passage, a word that occurs at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of the story. And it's a Greek word. I love the Greek word. Proskeneo. Isn't that a good, fun to say, isn't it? Proskeneo. Yeah? It simply means in English to pay him homage, proskuneo. The phrase is the theme, I think, of the whole story, far more important than whether there were three magi bearing gifts. Proskuneo, paying homage to Christ, I think, gives the story its purpose, its direction, and its culmination. In the beginning, in verse 2, these magi announce the very purpose for their presence. The purpose for this long journey. We have come to pay him homage. That's it. 
And believe me, friends, the implication of that action is crystal clear in the Greek. Proskuneo was a word commonly used to describe the custom of prostrating oneself at the feet of a king or a queen or a monarch. All the way down. I mean, forehead to the dirt. Proskuneo. Yes? Paying homage. This physical posture, it dramatically expresses the idea of giving not just gifts, but our entire selves to the one who we would call Lord. And like ours, the Magi's faith journey begins with the need to give themselves utterly and completely to the only one who is indeed worthy of their worship. Now the next appearance in the middle develops a complex implication for the word as it relates to the world and to all of those who hold political and economic power in our society. Herod. Herod tells the Magi that he wants them to report to him when they have found the child, so that he too may what? Proskuneo, pay homage to him. Now, we as readers know the duplicity of this statement on the part of Herod. When he hears nothing back from the Magi, what does he do? He orders the slaughter of the innocents. The text tells us that all of the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under were put to death. Now, however, Herod's claim that he wants to pay homage to the child is more than a ruse. It's a piece of irony that the author uses to communicate the earth-shattering character of the story. And the irony is that Herod unknowingly states what in truth he needs to do. This corrupt king who rules by violence and fear does in fact need to prostrate himself before the power of love and compassion and justice, needs to give himself entirely to this grace that is embodied in the incarnation of this child which these magi are seeking. So the magi continue on their way. And when they find the child there at the end of the story, something amazing happens, something that our traditions and our carols and our pageants and all of our celebrations kind of hide, right? Did you notice that the magi do not immediately present their gifts? Did you notice that? Like they don't walk in and say, hey, how you doing? Happy birthday. Slap the gifts down, right? They don't do that, right? What's the first thing that they do? The text says the first thing they do upon entering the house and being overwhelmed by joy, as Rev. Amy said, seeing Mary and this child, is they kneel down and pay him homage. Only after that act of worship and giving themselves completely do they present their gifts. And that may seem insignificant, but I think the order of the actions is important. Think about it. Homage first, gift second. Because look, gift giving might be a way of controlling others. I've never done that, preacher. Never give a gift to control. Look, it can be. And the thing is, is it's the Magi just waltzed in and plopped their gifts down on the table. It might have seemed like they were in control of this moment, that they were in command of this particular circumstance. But that is not the case. No, they walk in and express their relationship to Christ by kneeling and paying homage to Him first. First worship, first giving of themselves utterly and completely to this Christ child, and then offering their regal gift. And so I think it turns out that the Magi's fourth gift was actually their very first gift and probably the most important. Because you see, in essence, the gifts of the Magi are symbolic of their witness of faith and belief in God, in their search for this Christ child. 
their gift of faith is also witnessed in their act of worship. Falling to their knees becomes a public sign of faith, an active sign of worship and a demonstration for all to see of their faith. Now in our present day, and this is just my opinion, I think there is a growing desire to search for a relationship with the divine and to express spirituality that is personal, private, kind of devoid of communal expression. But perhaps the Magi provide for us a reminder that our worship and belief in God is not simply a private matter, but one in which we publicly expressed through the act of giving witness and worship and of publicly offering our gifts to God and to others. Because after all, we all got to start somewhere, right? And where we start from is important. That attitude, that mindset, that perception, it's going to determine how you do things. And that how is going to reveal who you are. Finally, years ago, a few years ago, one of my beloved daughters, my girls just... They teach me something every single day. She put a post on Facebook at the beginning of 2020, and I wrote it down because it just brought tears to my eyes, and it made me think of this little text. She writes, quote, 2019 was nothing that I expected or planned it to be. It was really hard. It was sometimes just mediocre, and at other times it was incredible. To 2020, I don't hope that you are good to me. I hope I am good to you. I hope I enter each day, she writes, with grace and take in all that you are meant to be. On this Epiphany Sunday at the dawn of a new year, beloved, I hope and pray that each one of you will enter each new day saying, Lord, I want to be good for you. I hope you begin each day with just a small moment of worship, a little prayer, a little reflection, maybe listen to a song. I don't know, it doesn't have to be a whole lot. Taking in all of that, I hope you wake up and say, may I enter this day full of your grace, taking in all that each moment has to offer. May I remember that I'm not alone, that I have a gift that the world needs. Loved ones, begin each day with worship. Give yourselves into the hands of a God that loves you. And then may that love shine forth from your heart and on to others in every moment thereafter. Worship. And then bear your gift to the world. Your takeaways for today. Epiphany reveals how God enlightens the hearts of all people and how God helps them to discover divine revelation, to search for this truth, and to be faithful to it. Where we start is important. The attitude, mindsets, and perceptions we begin with determine how we view and negotiate our experience of existence in this world. The Magi's faith journey like ours begins with the need to give ourselves utterly and completely to the one who is indeed worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Generous and ever faithful God, you have spoken to us through your inspired word. 
Now grant us grace to be not mere hearers of your word, but doers also. Guide us from here by the light of your spirit, that we might believe and act on what has been revealed to us this day. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.